You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It's varied, you know, from from year to year or over, you know, even the decades, but clearly, you know, different dynamics uh, now versus 2015. Uh, but I would say the one, you know, consistent theme is the persistency of the threat and the, the evolution of the aspects of, you know, targeting different types of information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares an appeals court case on free speech rights and social media. I've got the story of online health tracking services oversharing with Facebook. And later in the show, my conversation with Luke Tenery of Stone Turn. We're going to take a look back at the OPM breach. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to share this week. You want to kick things off for us here? Sure. So we're getting into back-to-school season uh, for those of us with kids, and so I thought... Uh, we could share a case relating to First Amendment protections for off-campus speech on social media for uh, students. In this case, it was a high school student. Hmm. So this article comes from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They were involved in uh, this case. They wrote a friend-of-the-court brief to argue on behalf of this student. Uh, so this student, they never released the full names of, of minors in these cases, hmm. um, but it's uh, – C1G v. Siegfried is the name of the case. Okay. <laughs> uh, this student was caught making really an offensive Snapchat post outside of school. He was with his friends on a Friday night at a thrift shop. He was basically putting on Nazi paraphernalia and made a pretty derogatory joke about Jewish people. Mm. Uh, in a community, this is actually in the state of Iowa, but it's in a community where apparently there are a lot of Jewish students. Mm. Uh, he deleted the post a couple of hours later and apologized for it, uh, but somebody else had taken a screenshot of the, uh, of the post. It got around. Kids share these things as they do, got to the principal of the school. There's a big outcry among the Jewish community and uh, other students, faculty, staff, uh, parents at the school. Uh, the student was suspended while they did an investigation. Ultimately, he was expelled. So the student is challenging uh, his expulsion, as is his right, because it is a public school, uh, on First Amendment grounds, basically saying that he has a free speech right to post on social media, on online media, not during school hours uh, Hmm. without facing the consequence of expulsion. And this case made it to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is in uh, the upper Midwest, 
The Tenth Circuit really relies on a case we discussed last year. Uh, it was a Supreme Court case called Mahanoy v. BL. Hmm. Uh, pretty similar case, actually, um, where a cheerleading student wrote F cheer, um, basically saying F her cheerleading friends and, right. and coaches. Uh, and the Supreme <laughs> Court held— Friends in quotes, in air quotes. Exactly. Yeah, she was <laughs> right. not happy with her cheer team. Right. Uh, the Supreme Court came up with this standard that, yes, there is diminished First Amendment protection when we were talking about things that take place in public schools. Hmm. If we gave full free speech rights to public school students, that would be very disruptive. If a public school student could go up to a teacher and say, go F yourself, mm -hmm. uh, that would be very disruptive to the school day. Uh, the school wouldn't be able to maintain order. Uh, there's this whole concept of in loco parentis, which is fancy Latin for in lieu of the parents, meaning ah. the school is playing the role of a parent. They should be able to enforce discipline, maintain order. Uh, all of that is necessary for a public school. Mm -hmm. But what the Supreme Court said is that generally doesn't apply to off-campus speech. Off-campus speech is only unprotected under the First Amendment if it would cause or would be very likely to cause disruption at school itself. Hmm. Uh, so if it's something where somebody's making a threat to a student at school, a direct threat, if there are fighting words or if it's an obscenity at another student that would cause unrest or some type of dispute in school, in school hours, then it is not protected speech. But if it's something that is off campus, even if it is patently offensive, which the speech certainly was here, uh, that is protected First Amendment speech. Hmm. Uh, and so this student's expulsion was reversed by the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And we now have another example of a case where courts are recognizing students, young kids, free speech rights on social media platforms uh, – even uh, if it would have some sort of effect on what happens in school. Hmm. And I got to be honest, I don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer here or uh, <laughs> somebody who's coming down hard on, on the kids. Right. I'm not sure I agree with the outcome of this case. I'd want your perspective. Hmm. But if the standard is speech is allowed as long as it doesn't disrupt what happens during the school day, as long as it's not likely to cause dissension at school, uh, something that would interrupt students' ability to learn. Mm -hmm. That's the standard. I think something that's this patently offensive where parents take note, uh, the principal learns about it, it could cause certain students to feel unsafe or, mm -hmm. or unvalued at school. It's all the kids are going to be talking about on Monday. Right, and yeah. maybe it really is. I I'm just not sure I agree with the outcome of that case. But I guess as a first, somewhat of a First Amendment absolutist, I should probably come down on the side of, of protecting the First Amendment. Uh, I guess I'm wrestling with this in my in my own head here. Yeah. Um, but Hypocrisy I, is a hell of a drug, uh, Ben, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I'd be in, interested in your perspective on it, though. I mean, from a legal sense, we the First Amendment is incredibly robust. Mm -hmm. It is the First Amendment for a reason. Uh, it says Congress shall make no law, and that's been imputed to the states. Uh, and that's pretty absolute. It means we can only restrict speech in a very limited number of circumstances. Yeah. And so I recognize that right. Um, but I'm also uh, going to be the parent of somebody entering kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And if somebody posted something like this uh, and it got into the uh, school ecosystem during school hours, I could see how that would be somewhat disruptive, even though it was on Snapchat outside of the school day. Yeah.
So, uh, yes, I def- I have thoughts. Um, I my impulse here is that the school's ability to apply its discipline to the school's a school's ability to apply its own consequences should not extend beyond what happens on campus. That's my impulse. Sure. In other words, now I and I'm and admittedly I'm coming to this from a uh, pre-social media experience, right? So my thoughts on this are formed by you know, uh, Dave is a jerk at the video arcade, right? Which he is. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's admit that. I'm sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's, everybody's talking about that. Uh, that shouldn't lead to a suspension or an expulsion in school because I didn't do anything at school. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the really interesting angle here. And this is why we're talking about it on the show is this is really a case about the power of social media. Right. Uh, if this was somebody making an offhand comment and they took a Polaroid picture in the 1980s, yeah. uh, that type of thing just doesn't get around. It's kind of impossible to spread. The kids themselves would probably keep it private. Mm-hmm. Maybe put it up on a bulletin board and a couple of friends will see it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. This is still somebody's personal device. It's not like they're sending this image to the school email list. Mm-hmm. However, it is social media, meaning... Probably most of the student's peers are on Snapchat. So even though it was deleted, many of his friends, including some who might take offense to what he did, were able to see it. Uh, And even though it occurred outside of school hours, it's something that really could permeate the school doors. The other thing I think about is we went through this period of virtual learning. Mm. So I think this Mm. dividing line between within school doors or outside school doors is a little murkier than it was two and a half years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Especially since you never know when we're going to have to do that again. Um, And how far does the school's reach go in regulating virtual activity? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just don't really know the answer to those questions. I think that from the court's perspective, none of that is as important as protecting First Amendment free speech rights for the student. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm just uh, I'm just kind of torn on this case. Yeah, you know, it reminds me. Uh, earlier this week, I saw on Twitter, uh, and I apologize, I don't remember who it was who posted it, but it was uh, a woman who was a mom, and uh, you know, getting ready for this upcoming school year. The school had sent out their uh, I, I, more than a social media agreement. It was sort of a a student uh, code of conduct, I right. guess, and also, uh, I don't know what the term of art is, but it was, these are the rules, sign here to show that you agree to the rules. Right. Right, and and the student signs it and the parent signs it. Well, this parent had pointed out that um, on this agreement was the school uh, reserved the right to uh, inspect a child's social media posts on their personal device, uh, even things that took place outside of school. And the mom was like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) And I can understand that. I mean, that does seem very, very invasive. Yeah. I think the difference with a social media, I mean, I guess it depends on the reach of this person's Snapchat account and Mm. how many people saw it before it was deleted. Uh, Generally, my instinct is to agree with this mother that that is very intrusive, that yeah. that's none of the 
government, and in this case, the government is the public school administration, that is none of their business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can control what happens with my kids at home just the way that they are in charge of my kids when they're at school. Uh, But I think those lines really get blurred uh, because what happens outside of the school really can have a substantial impact at the school. Now, what the court did here is go through that test, uh, really examine the facts and see if this is the type of speech that would be likely to cause disruption at school. Hmm. And they really determined that even though this was controversial and it went to the principal and it went to parents and teachers, even despite all of that, it wasn't something that was going to be disruptive during the school day because it wasn't, I'm going to beat up Johnny tomorrow, come right. to the lunchroom for a fight. Yeah. Uh, or I'm, I'm going to beat up all the Jewish kids at school. It wasn't that. Hmm. Um, it was theoretical and wasn't directly related to something that was going to happen at school. Yeah. Uh, I, I just guess that's really a fine line. I mean— I don't want to give the kid a pass, but it sounds like a, a kid being a dumb kid. Right, and he no. was being a dumb kid, and he apologized for it. Yeah. Uh, although I will note, uh, if you actually read the case, his apology made several spelling errors that kind of rendered it uh, more laughable. He spelled the word meant, M-E-N-T. So <laughs> Maybe he needs to spend more time in school. In class. <laughs> yeah, maybe it really is interrupting his school day. So let me ask you this. When I'm a, so at school, we agree that it is the school's right to search my locker. Right. Okay. Is it within the school's right to search me? Uh, yes. Yes. It's not while you are in public school, you don't have traditional Fourth Amendment rights. There is some level of protection. Mm-hmm. There couldn't be arbitrary searches. You can't have a, like a generalized stop and frisk policy. Okay. Uh, but. You wouldn't have to go get a warrant if you suspected that a kid was carrying drugs. You could check his pockets in school. Generally, that's the accepted standard. Okay. So so I guess the question is, does that right to search me include my mobile device? With the, I'm just kind of thinking about what the Supreme Court would say. They say that a mobile device really is something special. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just search an incident to arrest as if it was somebody's pocket notebook or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they said in Riley v. California is that there's so much personal information that just because somebody is arrested, you need to have a separate warrant in order to search that device. So there is this increased level of protection beyond the physical things that you find in somebody's pocket when it comes to mobile devices. Mm. Uh, and I, I get that. Uh, but again, this wasn't like somebody's personal diary that they wrote in notes. This is something that they did share publicly. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's just one of those – it's kind of a 50-50 issue. Um, but it shows that uh, – another example of where the standard – the legal standard that's set up here about disruption to the actual school day gets a little more complicated when we're talking about social media because the reach of social media posts is so much larger mm-hmm. than anything that could have happened outside of school doors 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting that the court standards have really not changed despite the fact that social media posts themselves are so prevalent and so public. And it's almost as if, you know, if every kid in the school is on Snapchat, it's like saying something over the loudspeaker. That's how far the reach is. Yeah. Uh, So it's just it's it was just a very interesting case from my perspective. Yeah, for sure. All right. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Um, 
My story this week uh, comes from Forbes. This is written by Alexandra uh, Levine. It might be Levine. I apologize, Alexandra. Uh, <laughs> and it's titled Digital Medical Companies Funnel Patient Data to Facebook for Advertising. I don't even know if we need to read the article here, Ben. <laughs> yeah, that does not sound good. So uh, basically what's happening here, uh, there is a research group called uh, the Light Collective – uh, and they have a peer-reviewed study that they published uh, in a, a, a journal called Patterns, which evidently is a journal covering data science. Um, and they were looking at the ways in which uh, people's health-related activity online is tracked across websites or platforms and then used for advertising purposes on Facebook. Uh, and they studied uh, five different uh, online tools that people who are uh, cancer survivors or, or people who are going through uh, cancer diagnoses, you're living with cancer, that right. sort of thing, fighting cancer. Um, and they use these uh, these online digital health tools. Uh, and what they found was that there are third-party ad trackers used by those health tool companies. And these tools, surprise, surprise, track them around the web and then send the information off to Facebook to be used to target them for advertising. Yeah, I mean, this obviously rubs me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a couple of striking things about this article. First is that they contacted these five uh, companies that run these online medical services, mm -hmm. and only two of them responded and basically said, we're looking into it. And then a, a third one gave the sort of non-denial denial, saying, we don't purposely share. Right. Your privacy is important to it's us. It's very important to us. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, we would right. never do anything to jeopardize the personal relationship uh, we've established with you on our on our website. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting element is a spokesperson for Meta, uh, the parent company of Facebook, basically said, yeah, they should really shouldn't be doing uh, that with us. We have a very <laughs> clear policy about uh, what advertisers are able to share on our platform and how information, breadcrumbs collected on the internet can turn into targeted advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Uh, I don't think any of that would have come to light. None of those statements, either by these companies or from Meta, would have come to light without this peer-reviewed study. So it makes you question what else is going on under the hood that we're not going to discover. Right. Uh, and we're talking about very personal information I and mean, we're people with cancer diagnoses perhaps they haven't shared that diagnosis with family members their employer uh, and now it's being used to target their advertisements on on Facebook mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's kind of a big deal yeah um, and it's a little disturbing that not only are the companies doing this they don't really seem to be aware that it's happening uh, right this this article points out that that a couple of the companies are doing this uh, in direct um, uh, con contrary to their own uh, privacy statements. Right. Uh, I think we have to look at why they're potentially doing this, and it's really about quite a robust profit motive. Mm. Um, there's a great quote here from, uh, I guess it's uh, the people who, who drafted this study, while the digital medicine ecosystem relies on social media to re recruit and build their businesses through ads and marketing, these practices sometimes contradict their own stated privacy policies and promises to users. I think what that tells us is they can't really resist, or maybe they're willing to look the other way, the pull of online advertising. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard for some of these companies to be profitable. It's hard for any online company to be profitable uh, yeah. in, in isolation. One of the ways you can be profitable is your most valuable asset, which is the information your users share on your website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of money to be made from that. Uh, and that's why there are so many third-party sellers uh, because there's a lot of money to be made from it. So yeah. one thing uh, that I think worth is worth noting, we've talked about how people don't actually read the privacy policies. It seems like the companies themselves might not be taking their own privacy policies seriously yeah. if they're willing to look the other way and kind of let these things happen. Yeah, there were a couple things uh, – one of the organizations that they looked into was uh, is called Health Union, um, and they spoke to the president of Health Union, uh, Lauren uh, Lahan, who um, said that um, she said that you know when you log on to their site, they have uh, pop-ups giving them the choice to accept or reject cookies. Well, we've all seen those. Right. What do you do? I want to read the art. I want to. I want the information. I'm checking the box. Right. Yeah. And there's also, she said, there's also a "Do not sell my information" link at the bottom of their pages. Well, you probably need uh, some significant eyeglasses to <laughs> see that to see that typeface. Right. Right. Um, and then also, uh, the the folks at Health Union point out. Wait for it, Ben. They're not covered under HIPAA because they're not healthcare providers. Oh, I love right? this one. And I'm imagining our friends over at the Help Me With HIPAA uh, podcast, uh, you know, leaning back in their chairs, cackling out loud. <laughs> Shout out to Donna Grindle uh, right. if she's listening somewhere. <laughs> right, right. She she just did a spit take with her coffee or whatever. But uh, they say they're not a healthcare provider, but rather a publisher owning various health-related websites, which is true. It is true. But... I, I don't know. Letter of the law, spirit of the law, right? Yeah. People always think that HIPAA is going to save them. Mm. Um, it's protected health information. Either A, I don't have to share it if you ask me, or B, whichever organization I'm giving my personal health care information to uh, is uh, obligated under HIPAA not to share that information. People have to be very careful with that. Uh, HIPAA only applies to covered entities. Uh, that starts with medical providers and those who service medical providers. It's been extended to companies like LabCorp, mm, online mm-hmm. uh, data companies that maintain online uh, databases for medical providers. But it doesn't extend that far beyond that. Uh, so people's general presumption should be that HIPAA is not covering a particular website or a particular service. Um, better safe than sorry, and in many cases, HIPAA is not going to save you. Yeah, uh, I do think it violates the letter, letter or the spirit of the law because people here are sharing rather personal health information. Right. But the letter of the law is quite clear, um, and I think in order for some of these more uh, non-healthcare provider organizations to be covered under HIPAA, you need a significant change to the law and yeah. a significant change to the definition of covered entities. Yeah, to me, this really points out the the need for some kind of federal legislation. Look, make this opt-in. I think just make, if you want to sell my information, I have to opt-in. You can't automatically opt me in with with anything medical like there, anything personal. You know, just, just that one thing would, think about how much that would change. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think all roads lead to Congress should pass a federal data <laughs> privacy law. But it's a long and winding road, Ben. Yeah. I mean, we could maybe 80 percent of our stories we could sum up with Congress right. should pass a. <laughs> there ought to be a law. There ought to be a law that does that. <laughs> I do think there's some hope. Uh, many of our guests on this show have, have said the same, that there might be momentum towards a federal data privacy law. Mm-hmm. Exactly what that would look like and when it will happen. We don't know. Um, But yeah, so many of these problems exist because there is a vacuum at the federal level. There is no federal data privacy law. We have a patchwork of laws that apply in various circumstances, HIPAA being one of them. And then we have state laws, uh, CCPA being the most prominent example. But Mm -hmm. until we have a clarifying federal data privacy law, we're going to get a lot of these articles where it's like, hey, that shouldn't be legal. (laughs) Um, But it is because we do have this this policy vacuum. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If there's something that you would like us to cover on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Luke Tenery. He is from an organization called Stone Turn. Uh, and we uh, took a look back at the OPM breach, uh, one of the biggies, right? <laughs> and uh, had a conversation about that, uh, some of the history there, and also some of the takeaways, how it's informed some of the, the, uh, the things that folks are doing today in the, in the privacy and uh, data security field. Here's my conversation with Luke Tenery. Really uh, impactful then, I would consider the OPM breach a watershed event. It goes back to 2015, uh, quite a bit of uh, impact essentially to uh, government employees, particularly those for the federal government. For those that don't know what the OPM is, it's essentially like the HR function for the federal government. And in this particular case, uh, an adversary or a threat actor compromised the network. And there were essentially two separate but related cybersecurity incidents as has been disclosed, mind you, that affected the information of federal employees. In one category, it basically says the information of federal government employees, uh, their HR-related information was compromised. 
And then another group, those related to uh, background screening, particularly for kind of more sensitive clearances. Their background screening form information, uh, I believe it's called the some of the SF forms or SF-86, I believe it is, were compromised. So you can kind of think about the value of that information, particularly those that are, you know, pursuing or the government is designated a, a need to know to sensitive information, the people that have gone through the background screening process for those levels of clearance, their, their information was compromised as well. And not just the, those people, but uh, there's a ripple effect to that in that, you know, when those forms, they cite different references, close parties of contact, spouses, et cetera, family members. And so, you can imagine the level of sensitivity that would have been contained in that combined incident. But it goes back to 2015. It's sort of been resurrected a little bit of late, particularly for some of the the claims uh, that uh, essentially are, are earmarked to or settlement to the victims. But that's been in the news of, of recent uh, weeks. But, but obviously, people have made uh, aligned comments to that with the suspected threat to that being, uh, or suspected to be China rather. And so uh, given recent tensions there, it, it, it sort of raises the, the recollection of that, even though it's a, a pretty dated incident at this point. Yeah, I mean, my, my recollection, you know, having some friends who were in that cleared community was that uh, they certainly considered it to be a big deal, you know, quite a violation. And I think it's fair to say that for the U.S. government itself, this was both a wake-up call and and a black eye in terms of their cybersecurity. Um, what happened in the immediate aftermath of this event? Was what was the response? Yeah, beyond uh, the just the their public statements on OPM.gov and what you know, I've sort of gathered from having relationships of, of folks formerly of the federal government, et cetera. The the understanding that I have is um, FBI and I believe DHS investigated. So kind of think of the, the key government's resources at the time. Granted, much has evolved in terms of what a response to a cyber incident would look like uh, in 2022 versus what, what it looked like in 2015. But but ultimately, the FBI responded to investigate and, and then DHS was involved as well. Uh, so Homeland Security had some level of apparatus to you know, secure the environment as well. But ultimately, investigation, security response. And then, you know, in terms of the broader, I guess, remediation, all sorts of sort of credit monitoring and identity restoration type protection services were uh, allocated to, you know, give some level of service to the victims for broader identity protection services. Can you help us understand if you're a government employee, if you're someone whose information was released as a result of this hack, what uh, do you have at your disposal in, in terms of uh, some sort of settlement with the government? What what, what options do you have? Uh, the fulsome of that, is, again, I'm not a, a former federal government employee, and I, all I can tell you is what they have allocated is sort of the, the victim registration and, and related services on the OPM.gov site. But what I can tell, having been involved um, in breach response and protections for victims over time, 
uh, over the last 15 years or so where, where this was sort of a big deal. Basic credit monitoring is, is certainly part of it. Uh, aspects of, of other identity theft prevention services. So kind of think um, trying to monitor for hits to your credit, random usage of, of social, et cetera, to op- not just open lines of credit, but register for utilities and other services. Those are sort of the protections that, you know, were, were offered for these, these victims. And then just recently, as you mentioned, some level of, of litigation uh, and settlement for, for harm or damages. Uh, I think a judge recently sort of approved a preliminary approved somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million, 63 million dollars, which averages out to, uh, I think around the, the, the current math is about $700, I guess, for victims that, that register in that way. But, but ultimately, you know, not, uh, much more than a, a typical consumer, uh, set of protections to my knowledge, although, um, there, there could be other, protections in our monitoring that the, the government has in place for the victims. I, I just don't know that by, by virtue of not uh, coming from that, that area of, of the government. Sure. And how has our relationship with China both been informed by this event and, and evolved in, in the years since it happened? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say the, the relationship uh, or uh, – there were certain, definitely certain dynamics and, and strains likely that came out of the OPM breach, but I would say the incident itself was was probably more just symptomatic symptomatic of prior and, and pre-existing tensions. The dynamic uh, around you know the nation-state adversaries, et cetera. That by that point in time, there it had been pretty well documented and known. Uh, even prior to 2015 and going back to the 20 aughts or, or 2000s, that there was some level of, of cyber cyber activity, sort of non-kinetic activity um, between U.S. and China from a, a cyber perspective. And so, you know, from that vantage point, the, the broader, you know, theft of intellectual property, gathering intelligence about um, our people uh, or uh, also, our, our government employees. That that sort of targeted information has been pretty well known, and we've, we've even can seen uh, from an adversarial sense, nation states go after you know similar, more updated information. Uh, the Marriott breach comes to mind in terms of uh, one of the more publicly known ones. Uh, you can imagine what adversary could do with that type of information uh, in terms of you know, identifying government employees, where they're traveling, or aspects, you know, from an OPM perspective, highly sensitive people with clearance, potential politicians, and having that information at their disposal for things such as influence operations, identifying spies, um, assets um, of, of spies, etc. You know, really, the the intelligence treasure trove that that was was just kind of further symptomatic. They leveraged a cyber apparatus to to compromise that information, but they've really been targeting a variety of our. Uh, I'm not downplaying it at all, uh, but they they up until that point they've been targeting a variety of information. It it really was you know probably not really a known target of source being OPM, but but certainly. Uh, at that point, it was clear that, you know, a variety of nation state adversaries were probably interested in, in 
kind of obtaining that level of sensitivity and information about federal employees. Is there a sense that in the years since this hack took place that the government has had the opportunity to make the adjustments that are necessary and we're in a better place now? That's a difficult question to answer in some sense. Uh, We're coming off I used the term watershed a few moments ago for OPM in 2015. And really, we we had a new iteration of a watershed cyber moment in in late 2020 with solar winds. And so a totally different type of attack. Um, It was of the supply chain variety, whereby, in this case, a different, likely different nation state adversary compromised. a third party resource that was solar winds that you know many government entities leverage their software products to protect their networks but ultimately it's still unclear the fullness and panoply of information that was targeted in that sense could have been a variety of different circumstances but ultimately you know there there is this sort of cycle and iteration of uh evolution of attacks and so i think the the one expected um or consistent theme is, is in this case, Dave, that, you know, the nation state versus nation state, they'll continue to uh, evolve. Um, It's clear that the, the information that they target uh, varies uh, from year to year, depending upon uh, circumstance. You know, many of, we know for years that one or more nation states have targeted U.S. corporates and defense industri- industrial base, uh, or commonly referred to as the DIB, their information uh, for you know defense, their own defense purposes, uh, and then other you know even more corporate espionage dynamics uh, for being more competitive in in the landscape uh, and and global economy. So it, it's varied, you know, from from year to year or over you know even the decades, but Clearly, you know, different dynamics uh, now versus 2015. Uh, But I would say the one, you know, consistent theme is the persistency of the threat and the the evolution of the aspects of, you know, targeting different types of information using highly sophisticated means and well thought out and strategic um, attacks. That is a consistent theme and you know, what they intend to do with that information may may evolve. But but obviously, you know, it's notable over the last handful of weeks, they, you know, have shown different advancements in their their military technology, including uh, a new aircraft carrier, um, hypersonic weaponry. And so all these are visibly to the layman generational updates to their capability that you know taken a relatively short period of time in many respects but but ultimately yeah i would say the constant evolution of everything dave increased sophistication but then changing of targets of of strategy are what are kind of consistent between even 2015 to now What do you think? It was really a good retrospective on the OPM hack. I mean, I think that was 
for many people, that was the first foray into cyber risk, especially mm-hmm. for federal government employees who just didn't spend that much time thinking about what would happen if their information were uh, were hacked. Right. And then it was the scale of it because we're talking about millions of records. Uh, it became kind of the original sin of cyber incidents in that it informs how we think about them. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, not to return to the same theme here, but you'd think that the OPM hack, because it uh, affected so many federal employees, would have led to more of a groundswell in support of robust uh, cybersecurity legislation. And Congress has done uh, a good deal to try to abate some of these risks, um, but it hasn't quite served as, as the motivator that many of us thought it would yeah. at the time. Somebody needs to hack Congress, Ben. Don't say that out loud. Did I say that out loud? Keep that thought to yourself. Should we delete that? uh, Using my outside voice. We might need another another disclaimer at the end of the show. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, Yes. Things that Dave says out loud should not be taken seriously. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because he is not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just have to be a little more careful. You can really, I might have to funnel my my, uh, thoughts through you. Well, you probably, yeah, that's right. You probably have more robust insurance than I do also. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, again, our thanks to Luke Tenery for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.